I found that there were there were sort of two opposite types of responses from Christians that were kind of equally problematic, but in really opposite ways. And one was uh, like once I came out, it was like every subsequent conversation I had had to be about sexuality. It was like, oh, hey, Greg, how's the gayness going? And then on the other hand, there are also people who in, in I think in an attempt to avoid that error will then just avoid the question altogether. It's like the moment we get remotely close to discussing sexuality, they'll find a way to change the topic and be like, but tell us more about your bakery job. Welcome to Undiscussed, the show where we talk about things Christians should talk about, but often don't. In this episode, we discuss sexuality with author Greg Coles. Welcome to Undiscussed. Uh, my name is Eric. And my name is Patrick. And on this show, we talk about the things Christians should talk about, but often don't. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Pat, we say this every week, but it's it's good to repeat it that we are not experts on these issues. We are not, ex- well, probably about anything. Uh, accurate. Yeah. I'm an expert at being me. That's about the only thing. I sometimes even suck at being me. Yeah. <laughs> trying yeah. so hard to be other people. I can't even be me well half the time, but... Yeah, but uh, when we talk about the show, the point of the show is to really uh, encourage discussion, open up talking points on these various subjects. A lot of the things that we're talking about in this season are pretty heavy topics, and uh, we're not going to shy away from that, but we uh, are not trying to have the definitive conversation. You know, we're trying to uh, just start a conversation and hopefully benefit. Yeah, and I think my experience too uh, in the church or within Christian communities, and I would say also that I'm fully um, part of this problem, is that a lot of talking happens and uh, not a lot of listening happens. So um, when you're when you're talking about an issue, you you often just kind of talk at the person, you know, give the Christian point of view on it, and you don't really spend a lot of time listening. And I, I that's happened in my life. I've seen that pattern in my life. So for me, this podcast has been an exercise in in listening learning to understand and just learning to appreciate someone who comes from a different worldview from mine, a, just a different background, has different experiences, and just learning to to empathize and understand and, and love. Yeah, that's that's the key word there, empathy. Being able to put yourself in someone's shoes and, and to just uh, have an emotional connection with them. And uh, today we have a very special guest with us. We have Greg Coles. Uh, with us. He's in Pennsylvania. We're in Canada. So uh, through the beauty of Skype, we have Greg. Welcome, Greg. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And uh, Greg is the author of a book called Single Gay Christian. And the topic that we're going to be talking about today, uh, surprisingly, is uh, sexuality and uh, sexual identity. you know, go figure, his book title uh, coincides with that. And, uh, you know, I've said this to Greg off, off air, but I uh, read his book in one sitting because it was so gripping and touching and uh, just I, such a great read for me that I, I just couldn't put it down. And so we're happy to have you here today. Oh, thanks. You're very kind. So, Greg, maybe um, some biographical information about uh, yourself would be helpful for our listens, listeners. Where, you know, where do you come from? Where'd you grow up? Uh, what's life look like for you? So the quick crash course, I was born in upstate New York, super close to the Canada border, actually. So I got big love for my Canada brothers and sisters. Uh, was born there, and then when I was three, my family moved uh, to Indonesia. Uh, my parents were English teachers, and I lived there uh, lived there until college. Uh, came back for college and worked for a church for a year after college. I now have just finished up my PhD in English at Penn State. Um, so I'm currently in the limbo period where I'm like applying to a bunch of academic jobs and not really sure if I'll get an academic job. And in the meantime, I do a lot of writing. I'm going to bake a wedding cake for a friend of mine next weekend. So I'm just kind of living the high life here. 
Yeah, and your PhD, we were joking before, but it's a PhD in awesomeness, right? <laughs> I, you know, I think I think English is about as close in disciplinary <laughs> status as you can get to a PhD in pure awesomeness. So absolutely. There you go. And um, I don't know if this is a fair question because you probably have many, many authors that you love, but as a writer yourself, are there authors that you look to and uh, like gain your most inspiration from or maybe the easier way to say is who are your favorite authors so my two favorite and most influential authors uh, are madeline langle and c.s lewis in fact i love c.s lewis so much that when i was uh, after that year i worked for a church when i when i left the church to go to grad school i had a bunch of dear people in the church saying why would you leave ministry when when you could just stay here why would you go back to grad school and what i found myself telling those people is i'm going to grad school to get my phd in english so i can be more like c.s lewis <laughs> and invariably i would say that and they would be like Oh, that's okay then. So, <laughs> so C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis is like role model. You know, that's life goals right there. Yeah, you're in good company here. Um, I have, <laughs> I have a question. Actually, uh, you lived for most of your, I guess, youth life in Indonesia. You moved back here when you were uh, a teenager, right? Yeah. Was there like any sort of like weird culture shock, like growing up and having your formative years in Indonesia and then coming back to the States and live? What's that like? You know, yes, there was absolutely culture shock. I uh, so so my family, when I was growing up, we would come back to America once every three years uh, for a furlough. And so I grew up kind of vaguely familiar with America, but America was like a place that you visited. Like you would come and you would endure for five months and you would you would find things to appreciate about America. You would be like, you know, the food's not bad. Um, this this four seasons thing is kind of cool. Uh, but then you would go home. So when I came back for college and then didn't get to go home again, there, there was a sort of a crisis. Uh, but I think uh, eventually I came to find that the the places I feel most at home are the places where I feel like I have people with whom I belong. Uh, and so once I began to have people in America with whom I belonged, then I could kind of get used to all the weird things about life in America, uh, like the butter being in sticks. We don't have stick butter in Indonesia. So when I got to America, it was like one of those little things that would remind me that I was not home. I would be like, why is the butter in sticks? I, we don't get butter in sticks. But then eventually I, I met some people. I started to feel more comfortable. And then I was like, this butter and sticks. I love the butter and sticks. So, <laughs> so convenient. So transportable. Exactly. So, so I think you know. O- over time, I've I've maybe become more American, perhaps to the chagrin of my Indonesia side. Um, what do you miss but, most about uh, Indonesia? Well, after the people, uh, which certainly are the are the number one thing I miss. I miss folks from Indonesia. Um, I really miss. Uh, Fresh Indonesian fruit. Oh, oh there's yeah. nothing like it. And and you know, fruit fruit in America is is fine and good. And we have some exciting things we don't have in Indonesia. But the mango that we can acquire here is just nothing like a real good Indonesian mango. Oh. I I can I can relate a tiny bit. I've spent some time in in parts of Africa and uh, South America, and I can attest that eating fruit off the tree. <laughs> is far superior than having it shipped halfway across the world to a grocery store and, you know, spruced up with some uh, color and, and yeah. so on. Any, any place I've ever traveled outside <laughs> North America, I've just, like, I've been obsessed with fruit. I'm like, this is what it's supposed to taste like? No wonder. Like, <laughs> it's like an amplified version of, like, what I've ever tried at home. I've been eating dust all of <laughs> yeah, my life. basically. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Greg, our topic today is is sexual identity, and I wonder, um, uh, we had said in our conversation before that the whole point of today's show is not to define camps and to, like, uh, try to once and for all definitively, you know, set down the parameters for all time on sexual identity and so on, but to uh, talk about it. And I just wonder... Um, you know, what, uh, what has been your, uh, this is a broad question, but what has been your experience with, uh, 
dealing with the the stresses of sexual identity? So for me, the story starts in middle school, which is a terrible time for any story to start because middle school is just traumatic on a variety of levels. But uh, I remember uh, one of my one of my uh, distinct middle school memories is being in those those youth group moments because because I, I grew up within the church. Uh, so I went to a youth group and there would be moments that they would split up the boys and the girls. And invariably, when they split up the boys and the girls, it meant they were going to talk about sex and uh, always, always. And uh, and and the thing that they that they told the boys about sex was was basically like, here's what's going to happen to you. You're going to want to look at naked women, but don't look at naked women. And I found after experiencing a number of those talks, I was like, I am really remarkably good at not looking at naked women. So I was feeling really self-congratulatory, like I was feeling like the holiest 11 year old in the world for a short period of time. And uh, and and it took me it took me a little while to recognize that I, in fact, was having an experience of puberty, that I, in fact, did have a sexuality. Uh, it just it just wasn't the the one I had been being told to expect. And so so that launched for me uh, a season of crisis where I tried to sort between the, the two dominant narratives that I was hearing from other Christians. So one of those was the ex-gay narrative. Uh, which said something along the lines of uh, if you love Jesus properly, if you do the right things, and if you work through whatever traumas you have in your past, if you work through your distant father and your overbearing mother and so forth, um, then you eventually become straight. And that's that's the ideal. Um, that's the so that was one land. narrative. Exactly. Yeah, because once because once you're straight, you have no more struggle with sexual sin at all. <laughs> nope, it ends there. Um, it ends right there. <laughs> yeah, thank you, gentlemen, for that confirmation. <laughs> oh man. If I could pause your story for if I could pause your story for just a second, there's so many of those. Once this once you hit this part, it all ends. Once you hit this but like once you're married, sexual sin disappears. Once you're like a little older, it's like all these ridiculous myths of just sorry, I had to rant for a moment on the falsehood that there's some moment that arrives where you stop being human and having uh, sexual drive and and you know being bound by that and sin and everything. So I, I digress. I paused your story at, at a at a critical moment, but I was I couldn't let it lay uh, unranted. <laughs> oh, it's a it's a welcome digression. Thank you for ranting. So so for me that 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 first narrative was I mean that was that was the thing I sort of felt like I inherited. Uh, so that was the narrative that I spent a long time trying to trying to make work in my life. Uh, so that pretty much dominated my middle school years and high school years. And even my college years, though I was starting to get a little more suspicious of it by then, uh, I did I did a bit of dating uh, and uh, eventually came to a place with God where I was like, this is kind of your moment. This is a really good time for you to make this thing work, make me properly straight. And when that when that didn't happen, I began to wonder, okay, what if this never happens? And so I sort of began to uh, to look at the second narrative I had heard, which was sort of the, the gay affirming narrative. Um, and so the idea there is that uh, upon revisiting what the Bible has to say about sexual ethics, maybe you can come to a place where you conclude, uh, yeah, same-sex marriage is actually just fine in God's eyes. Uh, and so you feel free to pursue that. Uh, so I spent so I spent some time kind of uh, really digging into the biblical text. Uh, I had come up with excuses to learn biblical Greek. So I'm like there with the Greek. I'm watching my YouTube lectures and trying to trying to figure out uh, what what really is is true at the heart of of the text. Uh, and I found in that season, I ended up concluding uh, in my own reading, it was complicated, that it was more complicated than some of the folks in my life had been telling me. Uh, that the that the approach where you just flip open your NIV translation and point to like, look, the word homosexual is in there and it's bad, so the problem is solved. Uh, that that simplistic case wasn't sufficient, um, and yet 
at the at the end of it all, I still did end up concluding I think there is a best answer when we read the Bible when it comes to the question of sexual ethics. And I do think um, that the that the biblical sexual ethic is still, you know, faithfulness in uh, male female marriage and outside of uh, marriage uh, celibacy. So I so I came to a place for myself where where I concluded I I think. Uh, unless I feel called to be married to a woman, which I don't right now, uh, I think the thing I'm called to then is celibacy. Uh, and that left me in this really weird middle space that I hadn't heard of other people living in, which was like, I'm gay and all the conservatives think I'm not supposed to be gay, but I'm celibate and all the other LGBT folks I'm aware of don't think I'm supposed to be celibate. And I'm just kind of here in the middle. Um, so that was the, uh, that was the the tentative landing place that around around uh, the time I finished college and the years beyond, I started to sort of live in this tenuous middle space, just not quite sure what would happen next. And then you um, you wrote a, a book about your experience, <laughs> so that's the that's the average uh, response to <laughs> coming to conclusions <laughs> on this. So what what uh, what brought you to that point of uh, of deciding that? Was it like, oh, there's not enough uh, good, you know, literature out there on this, or I just have something to say that people should hear? How did you get there? You know, so in some ways, the book was a very accidental process. Not accidental in the sense that I just sat down and everything flowed from my fingers like butter, but in the sense that... Sticks of butter. uh, (laughs) Like sticks of butter, exactly. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) In the sense that... Uh, so when I was, when I was 25, uh, I, I began to realize I'd, I'd been living in this waiting place of saying, I think my ideal is just that I keep this a secret for the rest of my life and then I die. And you know, that's a great story. Um, I began to wonder, uh, shortly after I turned 25, whether maybe there was, there was something more, uh, that God that God wanted to do sort of intentionally with me, um, and and so I so I came out I came out to uh, the pastor of the church that I was at at, uh, at that point, and uh, shortly after that came out to my parents around the same time, sort of seeking wisdom, wondering what my life might look like. I wrote an email to Wesley Hill, who's the author of a book called Washed and Waiting, uh, which tells a story somewhat similar to mine. Wes is more theologically minded than I, but but our stories are in many ways pretty similar. And I had recently discovered his book. So I wrote him an email and writing him that email was the first time that I had sort of written anything of my story down. Because before that, of course, the mindset was you make sure that you leave no paper trail so that after your death, no one discovers anything about you posthumously. You know, it's like, yeah. you got to keep it contained. Um, so, but I'd written Wes the email. So now it was, it was in print. It was in the, it was in the, the digital sphere. So I found that in writing Wes, there was something sort of, sort of cathartic about, about the writing, about putting something down on digital paper. And around the same time, I had been trying to work on a novel and I kept sort of having these false starts. I was having some writer's block. So I wrote my literary agent who was working with me and I said, hey, here are the problems I'm having. And his advice was, you should just take a break from this project and not worry about writing, but then just kind of write and see what comes out of you. So I was like, what sound literary advice he has offered me? And because I had just written this email to Wes, I was like, I'm just going to write some more things down about my sexuality because this is a good way to process. And so I started writing this project that over the course of time went from like, oh, I'm writing a journal to, oh, I'm writing like a series of very long journals. And, and then and then over time, the thing the thing morphed into uh, a much longer project. And I was like, it seems I've written a book. And then I had to decide, do I, do I burn the thing or do I, uh, do I try to get it published anonymously or do I actually slap my name on it and deal with the consequences? <laughs> you, you touched on something before we started talking about writing the book that I think, you know, uh, applies here as well. Um, so you mentioned that kind of 
the LGBTQ community thinks that you've got it wrong. <laughs> and uh, a lot of Christians think you've got it wrong. Um, and now you've come out and published a book that like definitively gives them ammunition <laughs> to uh, tell you what they think. Um, what? So first of all, what courage like to put yourself out there, such vulnerability in this day and age where vulnerability is very scarce. But like, what is that like to feel attacked on both sides? And, uh, you know, where do you find yourself? Because in talking with you and reading your book, you are so full of joy. And I'm sure there are moments when uh, I'm not watching, you know, the two times we've talked (laughs) that you're not. But like, how does that land? You know, one of the things that things that's been remarkable to me uh, in the season of publication and since is that I've discovered more uh, more solidarity and more people who are willing and eager to live in the middle space with me than I thought there were. Um, so for instance, uh, when I was when I was growing up and I had this perception, there's all the there's all the LGBTQ people who are either not Christian or have a more progressive sexual ethic. And then there's just all the Christians who think the gays just all need to become straight. I had this very binaristic mindset, which I think was prevalent and is still prevalent in some places. Uh, but recently, and especially since publishing the book, I've discovered there are actually a number of folks in the middle, whether it's other folks in a similar position to mine, um, or whether it's straight people who are sympathetic to our stories and and trying to figure out uh, what it might look like to live in the middle space. So certainly, uh, I have, since the book came out, gotten some substantial pushback on both sides of the conversation. Um, and that is, it's exhausting. Uh, because I, I think it's difficult to posture yourself in such a way that you can't like back up against one wall and just worry about the people on the other side, but you sort of just stand in the middle being like, well, who knows, who knows which way it's coming today. Um, you can't just try to, you know, sound a little more conservative or sound a little more progressive in hopes of placating one group of people. Cause the moment you do, you find you've just made the other ones even more peeved with you. Um, but despite, despite encountering um, that kind of pushback, uh, I really have found um, that far more than I was expecting. Um, there's been really, there's been really positive response too. Um, there have been, yeah, just just wonderfully encouraging things, whether from people who are in a similar place and saying like, oh, thank goodness, more people are saying this, um, or even from folks who say, hey, I would not have thought of that, but now that you say it, I wonder what it might look like for the world to make space for you. I think that could be a good thing. Um, so that, that has been, that has been encouraging, um, even dare I say an occasion for joy. Um, yeah, that's, that's awesome. Um, so you mentioned a little bit before about your experience, I guess, growing up in, in the church and how they kind of address the topic of sexuality and the, what we want to do on this show is kind of discuss the undiscussed. So this is a funny topic because some might come to this episode and be like, what do you mean undiscussed people like Christians won't shut up about homosexuality or like sexuality in general. And I wish they'd stop talking about it um, in some respects. So I guess maybe you could share with us your experience uh, with how the church engages in the topic of sexuality. Do they talk too much? Do they talk too little or are they talking about it wrongly? What do you think? I think the answer is yes. <laughs> they talk about it too much. They talk about it too little. And they talk about it wrongly. And sometimes they get it gloriously right, too. Um, and, of course, you know, the church writ large is a, is, a, is a big thing. It's a lot of people doing a lot of different things. Um, but one of, the, one of the things that I have encountered uh, after, after I come out to people, or I guess in my case with the book, I— I came out to a whole lot of people simultaneously, but in having those conversations um, and in having conversations where I came out before before the book was out, I found that there were there were sort of two opposite 
types of responses from Christians that were kind of equally problematic, but in really opposite ways. And one was uh, like, once I came out, it was like every subsequent conversation I had with that person had to be about sexuality. It was like, oh, hey, Greg, how's the gayness going? You know, it's like... (laughs) Like that became that became the subject of, you know, it was like, oh, well, here's Greg. Well, what's the topic of conversation? Um, So uh, so so there's that kind of response where sexuality can become sort of this totalizing narrative um, where the the only thing that can characterize a person is their sexuality. And until we sort of fix that, everything else is a moot point. There's nothing else worth discussing. And then on the other hand, um, there are also people who. Uh, in in I think in an attempt to avoid that error, we'll then just avoid the question altogether. It's like the moment we get remotely close to discussing sexuality, they'll find a way to change the topic and be like, "But tell us more about your bakery job," you know. <laughs> uh, and and weirdly, uh, and the impulse there I think is because um, because they're concerned that uh, that thinking or talking about sexuality will create this rift. Uh, the solution is to just avoid it as a way of humanizing me. Um, the way we can keep you human is to just pretend that you're not gay. Uh, and weirdly, I think both of them ultimately fall into the same error, which is to to feel like once we know that a person is gay, that sort of must be the most important thing about their humanity. Um, and and weirdly, that's that's a criticism I sometimes hear from conservative folks. They'll say, you know, why are you making your sexuality such a big part of your identity, such a big part of your humanity? I think uh, for for those of us who are uh, gay and following Jesus uh, in celibacy or in uh, opposite sex marriage, um, I think we're often trying to figure out how to how to be human in a way uh, that acknowledges our sexuality without according it too high a place um, to live to live in that tension where we say, yes, this is real. This is part of me, um, but this is not the whole of me. Uh, and I think uh, one thing that that would serve church as well is to is to try to recognize that in the same way that straight sexuality is is a part of us, but not sort of the whole totalizing part of us. Uh, that I think the experience of same-sex sexuality uh, is similar for a lot of us. Yeah, I've always been um, sad about uh, that approach to uh, to homosexuality um, or um, just people with differing sexualities than, uh, I guess, heterosexuality. It's just that, oh, why are you making your, your sexual identity like... The, the the biggest thing but that that never is addressed to like to straight people right like it's kind of the default right like that's just we also kind of do that um and you're like the question's always like oh who are you dating now in like high school or like oh you're not dating it like i got to ask incessantly in university like if i was dating someone and i felt like it was wrong to not be so there's this <laughs> tendency to over <laughs> overlook like um, the like people elevating your sexuality as a straight person, and sure. uh, and kind of focus on it uh, when it's when it's someone else's experience or something different than yours. Yeah, one one thing uh, from your book that um, I, it never occurred to me before. <clears throat> it never occurred to me before. I hadn't uh, thought about it in that way. That most uh, single ministries or uh, gay ministry is centered around we don't want you to be a part of this group anymore (laughs) we want (laughs) there's an exit strategy if we've done our job well you will exit this group because singleness is bad yeah singleness is like a disease that you need to solve it's like in very much same way like oh you're single oh we'll fix that (laughs) well and like i can imagine like gay single well that's like that's like a double stroke. Too bad like, it doesn't just cancel each other out, and it's just <laughs> it's just neutral. But um, you know, we're gonna transition to talking about you know what if any uh, conversations or things the church has done well. But like, can you comment on like just the unhelpfulness, even to just straight single people, that having such an exit mindset to a lot of the ministries to young people uh, in the church. Yeah. So there's a, uh, there's a, there's a delightful, 
new book uh, that came out uh, by Cutter Calloway, and it's called Breaking the Marriage Idol. And uh, and and one of the one of the things that that this book does really well is demonstrate the way that uh, that uh, Christians and I think especially evangelical Christians, uh, that's the focus of the book here, uh, evangelical Christians uh, tendency in how they talk about marriage as the ideal um, often reflects cultural attitudes about the primacy of uh, of romantic love. Uh, it reflects cultural attitudes more than it really reflects biblical attitudes. Uh, and so, for instance, uh, we don't seem to have a lot of space in our churches for the kind of mindset that the Apostle Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, where he says, and I'm paraphrasing here, he says something along the lines of, so the uh, the, the single man is concerned with the things of God and how to please the Lord, but the married man is concerned with the things of the world and how to please his wife and his interests are divided. And so Paul's conclusion is, so he who marries does right, but he who does not marry does better. Um, and I, I once, shortly after my brother John got married, I like read that passage aloud to him <laughs> just for fun. And then at the end was like, the word of the Lord to us. Amen. Uh, and, <laughs> And, and the point was not that I was trying to be a terrible brother, and it was certainly was not that I was telling him that his marriage was bad, um, because there's loads of stuff in the Bible that would suggest to us, like, hey, marriage is a really important calling. Like, you are equipped to do things as a married person that you're not equipped to do as a single person. Uh, and I absolutely see that uh, with, with my brother John, for instance, uh, and his wife, and their delightful twins, and uh, right, and, and their family does things that I, as a single person, w- will never have the opportunity to do. Um, but I think it's important to note that the Apostle Paul— is also observing the reverse, that there is a kind of obedience to God. There's a kind of fulfillment in life. There's even a kind of joy uh, that single folks have access to um, that is not part of the calling of the married person. And I think uh, the church to its, uh, you know, to its uh, good side uh, has done a good job of emphasizing like, hey, marriage is an important calling. We want to help equip you to do your marriage calling well. But I think in the process, if then the message we communicate is like, and the rest of you should really get on that marriage calling because it's good, um, then for whatever reason, folks end up staying single, whether it's because they're in shoes like mine and not really attracted to the opposite sex, or whether it's because uh, they're they're straight and they just feel called to singleness, or whether it's because they desire to be married, um, but they haven't found a person, God hasn't opened those doors Um the thing that we often communicate to those people is the calling you're in right now is sort of a, a second best. Um, and and it's also like this purgatorial waiting space. Like you should hang out here and it will purify you. And then once you're purified enough, then you too will become married. Uh, and, to, and, to, and to treat it in that way, I think uh, it, it both denigrates what's what's currently going on, and it also causes people to only think about a future uh, in which they are married, instead of to think about the ways in which God might want to continue to use them strategically in the midst of their singleness. So, so I, I think I think there's a lot there that the church stands to to recover um, that would serve not just not just folks with. Uh, with non-normative sexualities, but also your kind of your average straight people who, for one reason or another, are also single. Uh, singleness is a thing that happens. And uh, to to riff off Pat earlier, it is not just a, a disease that must be that must be healed. After the break, Greg shares how Christians can positively engage in discussions about sexuality. This episode of Undiscussed is brought to you by the Create Experience. Do you have a passion to create? Do you get excited about the potential of helping others discover Jesus through photography, journalism, videos, and other forms of media? Well, shucks, so do we. That's why Pat and I will be participating in the Create Experience next summer. If you've always wanted to use creative means to help others explore their faith and hang out with us, go to p2c.sh create to learn more about the Create Experience and how you can get involved. That's p2c.sh create. 
So part of the reason I was excited to talk about this issue with you is because I, I wanted to have a good, positive, healthy, good nature discussion about this. And throughout my life uh, in the church, I've noticed that like s- certain Christians, not all Christians, but certain Christians have just addressed this so horrifically bad. It's made me like cringe and like feel so bad for people who are listening in on those conversations. But as you've mentioned, there are examples of churches that, or Christians or just, you know, groups of people uh, within Christianity that have addressed it gloriously well. So it'd be great to kind of take some time to look at that example and kind of celebrate. We don't always get it wrong. (laughs) Um, Slash what made it good. Yeah. So in your experience, what were some of the best interactions that you've had uh, that have been the most helpful and the most loving, and how can we kind of emulate that? So I'm, I'm happy to say that the, the majority of my experiences, especially experiences with people that I'm close to, with communities that I'm a part of, uh, have been by and large really positive. Uh, and in fact, uh, because my book is telling stories from those communities, and and it was largely positive. Uh, my book tells a lot of positive stories about these things, so much so that I've read a couple of reviews that were like, this book is unrealistically positive. I don't know why he has such a rosy view of the world. Uh, and, and the reality is, you know, the, the, I don't have a rosy view of the world necessarily, um, but I think I have, a, I have an accurately optimistic view of the, of the people that I have been uh, blessed to be among. And uh, so... One of the, I mean, one of the really remarkably good examples, um, and folks who I talk about a lot when I'm talking about like, what does the church look like when it's working right, is the 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 pastor of my church uh, and and his family. So this is this is the same pastor that I came out to when I was 25. Um, I'm still at this church now, and uh, and there are a number of things that have been really really remarkable about that relationship. Um, first, so, so I kind of unloaded, uh, on, on this pastor, his name's Aaron. Uh, I kind of unloaded on Aaron about, about my sexuality, where I was at. And, uh, he, to his credit, first of all, uh, he did very little, like, theologizing at me in our early conversations, uh, which maybe is in part because I'm theologically minded enough that I was kind of already doing my own theologizing, uh, but also, um, his his impulse in in those conversations was to spend more time listening, saying, you know, what what does this look like for you? How are you how are you dealing with all of this emotionally? Uh, to ask good questions that communicated to me that I was that I was loved and cared about. Uh, and this is this is in the context of me uh, being a being a worship leader at this church, so being kind of a fairly public figure in our church space. Um, he didn't immediately launch into like. Let me make sure you know all the things that you better not do or else you're going to be in trouble. Um, uh, it was it was an approach that was that was focused on thinking about what it looked like to to care for me, to, to love me in in relationship with Jesus. Um, and then uh, a little while later in that relationship, when I raised the question of, hey, uh, I'm thinking about coming out because I have this book I kind of wrote and they might stick my name and my face on the cover of it. Uh <laughs> Yeah, when when they put my face on the cover of their book and they were like, "Are you okay with this?" I was like, "I guess," um, but that was that was not part of my plan. Uh, <laughs> so, so so yeah, so so I'm so I'm talking to this pastor um, and and saying like, "Okay, so I, as a somewhat public figure at your church, am about to publish this rather controversial book, and it may make a lot of people unhappy in your congregation. Is that okay?" Um, and uh, he, again, to, to his great credit, and I've, I've known of a lot of church communities that have not done this. Um, he said, you know what? You're, you're following Jesus. Um, we, we're on board with that, and we want to support you in that. Uh, and so that meant that, that he and then the elder team um, were all supportive of me, even when uh, there were some folks in our church who did kind of raise a, raise a fuss about the book and ultimately left our congregation. Um, their response was not to say, well, you know, to placate these people who are unhappy, maybe we should just have you step away from the piano for a period of time so as not to be a distraction. I've known a lot of churches that have taken that approach uh, with their with their celibate gay Christians, um, and my church, to their credit, has has not done that at all. Um, 
but really, I think uh, with again, I said I said this pastor and his family. The thing that has been sort of most remarkable to me and most hopeful to me uh, is the way that this particular family has kind of opened up their lives and and made me a part of them. Because I think for uh, for celibate gay Christians who are anticipating celibacy into the foreseeable future. Um, one of the one of the really real senses of loss that we can feel is the loss of not developing our own nuclear family and therefore not having any of the most obvious pathways to relational intimacy that we see modeled around us in society, even that we see modeled around us in our churches. And so this this family has uh, has very intentionally um, made space for me to to belong with them, to enjoy family space with them. Um, and so instead of instead of feeling the weight of the things that I have lost or the things that I'm saying no to, uh, what I feel most of all in that space uh, is is the joy of all that we get back when we choose to follow Jesus. Um, there's a so so my my very favorite passage in all of Scripture, which is so good that it happens three times because uh, it's in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. It's in Matthew and then in Mark and then in Luke, um, and it's this passage where Peter, ever the loudmouth, has said to Jesus, "Like Jesus, we kind of left everything to follow you." And Jesus answers, uh, there's no one who has left uh, homes or fathers or mothers or sisters or brothers or fields or cows or the list goes on. There is no one who has left all of these things that seem like the most obvious kind of family. Um, no one who has left those things who will not fail to receive a hundred times as much in this life uh, and in the age to come eternal life. Um, so, so Jesus promised to, to Peter and to us is that, you know, as we give things up for Jesus, that we actually find those things given back to us, not just in the next life, not just like, well, grin and bear it, suck it up for your misery on earth. And then eventually heaven is coming. Um, but that there's actually, uh, there's actually a, a giving back that there's a, that there's a return of, um, of all the things that we feel like we've given up. And so I think when the church is doing the church right, um, the church becomes that gift of family to celibate gay Christians, right? The, 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 the obvious pathways to intimacy that we give up, um, we find that intimacy, we find that family, and even more than we could have had in our own power, uh, we find that within the body of Christ. Uh, so I've found that in my church, and it's terrific, and it makes me sad that chances are good that I might have to move somewhere next year and, like, see if I can find another Christian community that'll be, you know, half as half as open-armed, half as delighted to have me. Um, but uh, but it, it makes me all the more eager, I think, to see the church writ large be that kind of church. Yeah, one of my hopes or desires for the church at some point is that it would be a place where people wouldn't feel shame or the like fear of of coming out and i i know Mm. that that's not just like a church problem that's actually like a societal problem uh where it's just like it's a it's a really difficult thing and it's a hurdle that so many people have to try and get over that I, i i can't possibly even like imagine how difficult that is but the thought that so many um, Christians or people who are inside the church are struggling with this silently and trying to to push mm-hmm. it down and, and don't feel that they can share this with somebody else without feeling judgment or condemnation, it, I just really feel bad and I'm devastated for the, the culture that we've created that uh, makes people who are gay feel not comfortable coming out or... Uh, feel like they need to hide this part of their personality and don't feel safe coming out. So what are the things that that we can personally do to create a culture that's a safer space for people to kind of open up about these issues and feel like you're a safe person to talk to? Well, without presuming to give you the definitive answer on this question, 
let me let me tell you a couple of things that I was on the lookout for when I was discerning who would be uh, good people to come out to. Um, because those of us who are considering coming out tend to be quite observant of the people around us uh, and and keen in evaluating um, who might be who might be helpful or unhelpful to have conversation with. Uh, so two things uh, that I that I would watch for pretty closely. One was specifically how people engaged uh, LGBTQ uh, topics, LGBTQ people, uh, how they talked about that conversation uh, generally would give me a lot of hints about what I could maybe expect from them. But then also more generally, uh, I would keep an eye out for how people engage generally uh, in matters of theological disagreement or just with people who were unlike them in various ways. Uh, how how did they react to difference in the world? Um, so specific to LGBTQ issues, one thing, one thing that I would do is sometimes I would intentionally uh, drop the names of things like Wesley Hill's book, Washington Waiting, which had come out a few years before I was considering coming out. I would sort of try to like move the conversation in that direction and then see what happened. Like, were they familiar with that point of view? Did they have any ideas? And I would just gauge how they responded uh, as a way of trying to gauge how might they respond to me if I said something similar. Um, but then more generally, there were also people I knew who, uh, whether or not they spoke specifically to uh, LGBTQ issues in my hearing, I would sort of watch them generally and say, for instance, wow, they really fly off the handle when anybody suggests to them that maybe the earth was not created in six 24-hour days. And they're right and left, you know, condemning people to hell over that topic. Uh, I'm not sure... <laughs> I'm not sure this one, you know, not that it, not that we should get off topic right now on uh, the creation of the earth, but uh, but in general, how people engage disputable matters um, and how people how people speak to and about um, folks who have a different perspective than them. In uh, in my mind, as I was thinking about who to come out to, that would say a lot about what our conversation might look like if I did come out. Um Something, something that just springs to mind is I hear you say that it like in my twenties, uh, was a period of my life where I was really, um, defining my theological boxes and like creating kind of like my, my view of God and, and the foundations of my theology and all of that. And during that formative time, I found it very important to argue with everyone who I thought, you know, came down on an issue incorrectly or whatever. And I find that in my 30s, uh, arguing has become less important to me and relationship connection and discussion and dialogue have become more important to me, even on things that I disagree with. And... Uh, I'm becoming more and more convinced that I, I don't hold the role of like arbiter of all uh, truth and, uh, you know, persuasion on, on different subjects. And I'm wondering, what is your perspective or comment on like, how, how, how would you encourage people to have helpful conversation or dialogue with people you don't agree with, you don't necessarily see eye to eye with, like how... How do you see that playing out? Well, first of all, let me say, I'm glad I met you in your 30s. <laughs> I'm still in my 20s, so everything you say is dumb and wrong, Eric. <laughs> Being in my argumentative 20s. Yeah. And who knows? I'm 39, so like, who knows what my 40s will hold? Oh, oh man. The 40s. Oh, man. <laughs> you know, I think one of the things that tends to make us argumentative, or at least in my life, one of the things that tends to put me in an argumentative mindset is when I put on myself the weight of responsibility for somebody else's perspective. Um, so if I feel like, oh man, this person is wrong and it is my sworn duty to argue them into the correct view, 
um, as if uh, as if what somebody else thinks is ultimately in my in my control or it's my job to make sure that everybody agrees with me about everything. And I think that mindset is not just not just inaccurate, uh, but fundamentally counterproductive um, because it puts us in a space of uh, hostility towards people we disagree with. And hostility rarely helps people think more like us. Uh, like to be like, Pat, you're an idiot and all your views are wrong. Let me tell you what's right. It's not making Pat think more like me. It's just making Pat think that I'm a jerk. And I was going to use a word slightly saltier than jerk, but then I was like, no, this is being recorded. Um, so, so, uh, so, so engaging in that antagonistic kind of way, it often feels internally to us like we're doing something noble. Like, oh, here I am changing the world like I'm supposed to be. Um, when in fact, what it signals to other people is this person cares more about being right than they care about me. One of the remarkable things about uh, the way the way the Apostle Paul models uh, and talks about conversation in the in the New Testament uh, is uh, he he casts a vision for adjusting the ways that we interact with people so that we can be understood by those people, uh, right? So uh, so we we hear him explaining it, for instance, when he says, you know, uh, to the to the Jews I became like a Jew in order to win the Jews, to the Gentiles like a Gentile to win the Gentiles, and he says I've bec- I've uh, become all things to all people. Uh, so that by all means possible, I might save some. Right? He's he's thinking through the matter of how can I how can I present myself? How can I communicate in such a way that I become understandable? Uh, and we see him putting that into practice too in the book of Acts, Acts chapter seventeen, being a great example of this. Um, but Paul is so concerned with talking about uh, what what he has great conviction is true in such a way that the people he's talking to can actually understand and learn from that. Um, Whereas I think when we when we get stuck in a mindset that says I just need to kind of argue people into submission with me, uh, what we do is we make the conversation all about ourselves. It's rhetorically, uh, not to get too professorial on you, but rhetorically this is a fundamentally selfish move, right? This is communication for your own sake, not communication for the sake of the person that you're communicating to. Um, and so I think. Um, Regardless, regardless of how much arrogance we have in our view, regardless of how absolutely 100% sure we are that the other person is just a doofus with no legitimate insight at all, uh, we can at the very least, if nothing else, um, before we even get to the point of recognizing our own fallibility, which is a good second step, we can at least do people the honor of speaking to them um, in a way that fosters two-way communication, not just in a way that that's monologic and ultimately unproductive. Monologic. Wow. You do have a PhD in English. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was definitely a school word. So, <laughs> I don't know whether I should say you're welcome or I'm sorry. Either way. No, you're welcome would fit. I, I, felt, I felt good about it. <laughs> My my, bro- <laughs> my brother has his master's in English literature, specializing oh, okay. in 17th century poetry. And so Ooh. I always feel uh, like I'm not smart enough to talk to him after, uh, like on certain subjects. And so I'll throw monologic into my vocabulary. And yeah, word of the day, we both have to use it in a work context. Uh, by the end. And I'm committed to using it like blatantly wrong too. I'll just drop it in the worst context that won't make any sense and just see how people how people feel. Um, but one, one thing I want to ask you about, Greg, is uh, I guess the, the idea of disagreeing with people and disagreeing well. Um, and we, we want to avoid kind of like putting people into camps in this episode and kind of like saying like, oh, this is what I believe and this is what this person believes. But what makes this conversation so interesting is that one of like two of the camps that exist are like, it's okay to disagree. And then some, the other one is it's not okay to disagree on this. Like this is like really important. And we were talking earlier uh, before we started recording about um, this TGC article that was written by someone that you're actually like, you, you love this person. Uh, the, the name uh, escapes me right now. Um, Rachel Gilson. Rachel Gilson. Yeah. And she, she wrote uh, like, I, I deeply resonate with, with your, with Greg's book, but I disagree. And 
you you look you you love her right so how did like how's your interaction with someone who says you can't disagree and you're on the side of oh you can disagree how does that conversation go so uh so uh, let me very briefly a bit of backstory on this so yeah. the reason i know rachel gilson is more or less because of that review mm -hmm. um because she got an advanced copy of my book and so before it came out uh she dropped me an email and said hey just so you know i wrote this review of it um and I wrote her back and was like, you know, I appreciate what's nice about it. I'm sorry we disagree on these points. Uh, and uh, and initially we were, I mean, we were somewhat frustrated with each other. Um, and uh, and and since since that review came out, both of us have evolved in our conversation with each other, in our relationship to each other. Um, but fundamentally, um, we both had a mindset of feeling like. Um, feeling like it was it was more important for us to identify the ways in which we were on the same team uh, and to be an encouragement to each other than it was to just spend all of our time kind of like going round and round and round on the relatively minor details on which we disagree. Um, well, and I won't I won't even I won't even weigh in for the present moment on how minor our disagreements are because that in itself, how minor or major is a thing that also becomes a point of contention. Uh, regardless, um, both of us felt like the most helpful posture here is a posture of charity toward the other person. Um, and so, uh, so we started, uh, we started this email correspondence that was sometimes, sometimes a bit, uh, a bit firm with each other but i'm firm in the sense that like you know iron sharpens iron um and uh and and also at the same time really genuine and really uh i i overuse the word delightful but i'm going to use it again because rachel gilson is just delightful um and then uh lo and behold i was going to boston to speak at a school so i wrote rachel because she lives there and i was like hey i'm coming to boston and we spent like five hours together and she fed me lunch and then i saw her at a conference later and i was like i love you so uh <laughs> so weirdly uh what began as uh as us being sort of like publicly disagreeing figures um evolved into um her being one of the voices that I really, really trust, uh, even though we we come at this conversation in a slightly different way. Um, I think I I, ho I think she would also say about I'd like to think so. Uh, I think both of us would say of the other um, that we're that we're fundamentally uh, eager to affirm the the good work that God is doing through that person. Um, and so I think I think engaging. Engaging another person uh, with charity, thinking the best of why they're doing and saying the things that they're doing and saying, um, and identifying points of common ground, really so that we can understand why we differ in the ways that we do. Um, so for Rachel and I, uh, as we talked about some of our differences, we realized, you know, some of the the different language that we prefer to use, some of the ways that we talk differently in this conversation is because we both have similar pastoral concerns for um, folks, especially like college age folks in this conversation. Um, and both of us, because of the communities that we live in, see various dangers and wanna help the church get away from those dangers. Um, and so because we're pushing against our perceptions of different dangers, we're sort of pushing in opposite directions at times, but ultimately our, our vision, our hope for where the church could be is a fairly similar vision. Um, so just to begin to disentangle, Hey, what are the things that are actually different in our perspectives? And what are the places where it's our similar motivations? It's our similar desire to really, really love people well. It's our similar desire to see uh, suicide rates among LGBTQ youth go down. It's our similar desire to see more people in love with Jesus. It's our similar desires that sometimes might cause us to have different perspectives on particular given sub issues. Um, I think that can be really helpful to disentangle that and to disentangle it in a way that's still ultimately compassionate and uh, thinking well of the other person. Yeah, I think that's the point exactly that you you nailed it there that the the hope is that more people are looking to and moving towards relationship with Jesus. And um, so 
as we as we come to the close of of this podcast it is our practice uh, to always give our guests the last word on the subject before we close off the show so i'm just wondering greg is there anything um, that you would like to say on this subject i i might even be so brave as to just throw it open and say you know you got carte blanche yeah, but, say but, whatever you want. You got a website you want us to go to. You want a book. You can. This is just, your time, man. Just don't get all monologic on us. Huh? <laughs> huh? 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 I, I was going to say, is this a bad time to teach you another big word? <laughs> um, well, since we were just on the topic of Rachel Gilson, let me end with this story, and then and then I'll make a I'll make a, a sort of a closing claim around it. Uh, so, not too long ago, uh, Rachel and I were texting. Uh, because that's that's like a thing that we do now because because we're friends and so we'll we'll text back and forth about things and something came up that inspired me to look back into our early correspondence because I was trying to find something that she had written to me and I was like how did she say that and so I found myself it was like 11 p.m. and I'm reading through systematically reading through the whole correspondence that I've had with Rachel over the course of the last year or so and and so our correspondence moves from these two people uh, who are who are at, at the at the beginning who are talking about a, a matter of disagreement largely um, and and over time uh, by way of charitable conversation uh, we sort of become digital friends and then and then we connect and then we're emailing more um, and it's remarkable. Uh, I started as I was reading through this correspondence at 11 p.m. I started to get like all choked up because I was like, this is just the most beautiful thing. And I just love Rachel Gilson so much. Um, and, and I'm like super emotional, which, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a sap in general. So that, that in itself is not a remarkable thing. Um, but uh, but I think it's it's remarkable to be able to look back um, to look back on on myself of the past or on somebody else of the past and say like, wow, I get to the present um, and the past feels so distant, but I can see the ways that the choices I made then and the conversations that I've had have kind of contributed to where I am now. Uh, I don't think there's ever been a point in my life where uh, I can't look back on on the Coles of like three years ago or seven years ago or 10 years ago and be like, wow, Coles, what were you thinking? Um, like, wow, why were you so hostile to poor Rachel Gilson? Wow, why did you ever have that stupid perspective about football? You know, uh, I never had any perspectives about football, side note. But um, but I can always look back at the former version of myself and uh, and and think like, I don't know why I thought that. I don't know why I was that way um but i hope uh but then somehow i get to my present self and i feel like i've got it all figured out and i'm like i have finally arrived i know all the things um i hope that more and more uh i become the kind of person uh who no matter what i have wrong right now uh i still don't look back on in the future and regret the way that i interacted with others um and so one of the things that was so neat to me looking back in that conversation with Rachel is, yeah, we thought differently. And yeah, we we may have uh, tweaked our position slightly as we interacted, but I don't at all regret the posture that we had toward each other um, because it was that kind of posture that lent itself to us actually not just having a productive conversation, but really becoming closer. Um, so. I hope that all of us, myself included, can become more and more the kind of people who have those charitable interactions such that even if we look back on ourselves and think like, I have no idea why I thought that, we at least won't regret the kind of people that we were to one another uh, in pursuit of Jesus. That's a that's a great final thought. And uh, I don't want to diminish what you said at all, but I... I I, when you said the coals of three years ago, I thought you were going to get all metaphorical, talking about like the coals or embers of of a fire, and, <laughs> and then I remembered your last name is Coles, and but I was like, oh, he's going to do like a literary metaphor thing. This is awesome. Yeah, the embers upon the coals that burn still to this day. Yeah, we're stoked I, in the fires. Yeah, of... yeah. <laughs> I'm so sorry to disappoint you. No, no coals. I I always in my mental dialogue, I just call myself Coles, like. Like you know, you know, you always have that oh, running yeah. mental dialogue. Oh yeah, and you're yeah. Like, oh, coals, you fool! Yeah, <laughs> fool of a coals. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, this has been fantastic uh, conversing with you and starting a conversation about sexual identity and uh, the pitfalls and struggles, but also the joys uh, therein. And so I, I thank you for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, I really appreciate you uh, talking with us, Coles. <laughs> I, um, I, I know for a fact that I'm going to look back on this podcast and be like, Pat, why'd you say it that way? Or like, well, you like, you got that wrong or use that term stupidly. I hope that's just like a sign of my, you know, growing in my understanding and knowledge of, uh, of these issues and just awareness around me. But I also hope that uh, the way that we've uh, interacted uh, was, was good and charitable and, uh, and that I won't regret that. So, um, I think this has been great for me personally. And the, the thing about this podcast is that there's so much to discuss and there's limited time. Uh, so there are probably, you know, aspects of this topic that people probably wish that we addressed, uh, or, you know, like, oh, I wish they talked about that. Um, but unfortunately we can't talk about everything. Hopefully sometime in the future, uh, we can have another, another discussion about this same issue because the discussion hopefully doesn't stop here. Yeah. And if, uh, there's something you wanted us to talk about, but we didn't about this issue or any other, you can grab us on our, uh, social media feeds at, undiscussed pod all one word on facebook twitter or instagram and you can uh you can talk to us there and we'd love to engage and uh chat back with you hopefully in a charitable uh posture i'm i'm taking that away that was that was a great last word craig yeah that's awesome this episode of undiscussed was produced by patrick erskine and eric humphrey Editing done by Ben Skinner, and the music was produced by Ian Post. Go to p2c.sh undiscussed to find more episodes, show notes, and information about our podcast. That's p2c.sh undiscussed. Also, remember to subscribe if you like what you hear, and you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at undiscussedpod, all one word. If you've got feedback for us, don't leave it undiscussed. Next week, we talk to Daniel and Christina M. of the In Between podcast about marriage, relationships, sex, and so much more. It's because if you're walking into marriage with that idea, ultimately, you're walking into marriage expecting to be served. Mm-hmm. You're walking into marriage expecting to get. And you're like, wow, my life is going to be so much better because now I don't need to cook dinner or now I don't need to vacuum the house, or now I don't need to watch Netflix by myself, <laughs> or now, you know, like I'm, and, and you think it's, it's all about what you can get. And obviously you're gonna be dissatisfied because you didn't marry a robot. <laughs> you didn't marry someone who was like, oh, my entire life purpose <laughs> yeah, is to please you and right. to live. No, it's, I mean, they, you, you have married a different person and and that i mean so so the danger of thinking of that right is you walk into marriage and you're like well this actually it's not like this <laughs>